0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next
1: stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the podcast. Um, This week, I chatted with a very dear friend of mine, Dr. Christine Reyna, who is currently a professor of social psychology and director of the Psychological Science Program at DePaul University. Her primary research interests are in the use of stereotypes to legitimize ideologies, the use of stereotypes to convey identity, and the influence of stereotypes on political decision-making. She teaches a number of classes, including a Harry Potter class. I also happen to grow up across the street from this lovely human, and to this day, we still get together to converse about a range of topics, including the influence of mythology on modern pop culture and ideologies. While I have not been personally able to experience her Harry Potter class. We talk about it and other popular mythologies anytime we can, including here on the podcast. And our discussion is something I'm really looking forward to sharing with you all. So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. And I'll talk to you all next time. Okay, so this is obviously a little different because you're not, you don't have a background in classics, uh, but you do look at symbolism and a bunch of other mythological sort of influences on, I know you're into modern psychology and politics, so I just wanted to start by asking um, about the Harry Potter class, funnily enough. Um, Yeah. Because that's kind of where I see your work intersect most with the ancient world. So if we're just starting with that, um, tell us a little, why did you choose to start teaching about Harry Potter?
2: Yeah, great question. So um, I actually started with Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. Um, I would, you know, in, in my various readings of Joseph Campbell, I feel like he would consider well the the monomyth is obviously his his critical thesis, um, and it really is a centerpiece of his academic career and his works and it 's basically the idea that all great stories are essentially the same story told with told within the cultural lenses and frames of their times so there is a common narrative thread that goes through all great stories. And that ultimately represents a roadmap for human development, which is why it's so universal. And it's the monomyth because the roadmap is universal. And even though the characters change and the backdrops change, um, the process of human spiritual evolution remains the same and gets replicated from culture to culture. And he makes, you know, he spends, you know, so his seminal work is Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he really spends a lot of time sort of making the case not just for the underlying common metaphors and themes of this roadmap, but what the roadmap is and what it does for humanity across time and across space. And so I I read Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces many, many moons ago before I read Harry Potter and as soon as i read harry potter i instantly knew one that it was a hero's journey and not just any hero's journey but a really profoundly complex hero's journey where every book itself is a complete hero's journey but the overall arc is also a hero's journey and also that um consciously or unconsciously and we can talk about that if you're interested, that J.K. Rowling was intentionally or not a Cambelian scholar in many ways, in the sense that many of her metaphors are very much aligned to the key metaphors in the hero's journey. And when I read Harry Potter, I was instantly convinced that someday I was going to develop a class called Harry Potter and the Hero's Journey. And when I wrapped up my administrative tasks at DePaul, and I had a little extra free time. That was my very first order of business.
1: Which is super, super cool. Um, But I guess, you know, Harry Potter, obviously it's just, it's so popular. I grew up with it. So many of my peers grew up with it. That's just kind of what was either read to us or the first things we started to read on our own. and so maybe just by virtue of that's when it came out um but you know there are so many other great journeys and stories uh you know also based off mythology that are equally i would argue as amazing like the percy jackson series i mean but that's clearly much more centered toward that's clearly greco greco roman history Mm -hmm. um so you know why not teach you know a class on on percy jackson I actually
2: could have taught this class on anything in The Hero's Journey. I could have taught it on Percy Jackson in The Hero's Journey, Star Wars in The Hero's Journey, The Matrix and The Hero's Journey. The point is, and this is what's so beautiful about Campbell, is that hero's journeys emerge in many, many places, in many instances. And what's important is that you find the hero's journey that speaks to you. Right. So some people are going to be attracted to the classics and the metaphors and symbols associated with the classics. And some people need stories that speak to their modern experiences. And the world is filled with these stories. In fact, one of the things I love about the class that I teach, Harry Potter and the Hero's Journey, even though the the lens through which we explore the hero's journey are the Harry Potter stories throughout Campbell's book. Um, there are, it's ancient mythology, it's ancient religion. We talk about Pixar films. We talk about sci-fi films, right? There's so many ways you can unpack the hero's journey and that's what makes it so compelling.
1: Okay, so I obviously have so many more questions and ideas and thoughts uh, about, you know, the hero's journey, but also just everything we can see then specifically in Harry Potter, since that's the class you teach. But I want to rewind just just for a little second and go back to young, a young version of yourself. Uh, You know, you you grew up in California, which I know. So, you know, okay, young you being influenced, did you always love stories, adventures, mythology, you know, were you familiar with mythology growing up? Yes,
2: yes. I was always fascinated with not just mythology, but spiritualism in general. So I was always interested in um, exploring spirituality from a lot of different perspectives. And so even though I was raised vaguely Catholic, as all good Latinas are, <laughs> um, you know, it was very like you know lowercase c Catholic, you know, just sort of like eh, I go to church occasionally. Um, I <laughs> I actually had like a really a really profound moment in my life. So so when I was really little, I wanted to be a priest actually, and I would hold. Um, <laughs> So, so I stole the, the, the Vesper books book from my church, because of course, you know, I'm so moral, (laughs) like any good priest would do. And I would hold mass in my sandbox with my neighbors. And I was the priest and I would squish Wonder Bread into flat discs as the host and I would have grape juice as the the wine, and I would have mass in my sandbox. And so I was utterly convinced I was gonna be a priest. So I was clearly very deeply drawn to the spiritual path. Um, And then, you know, as I got older, not much older, strangely, um, I started getting disenfranchised by the idea that I couldn't be a priest based solely on my gender. And so I basically, I remember the day we were getting ready for church and I was probably—I don't know, maybe eight or nine or whatever—and I just said, "I told my parents to their face, I can't go anymore because I can't support hypocrisy."
1: <laughs> a rebel from a young age. Love oh it. yeah, I was always
2: very, um, very precocious. And and the funny thing—I thought they were going be, to be really mad at me, but they were like really relieved. <laughs> they were like, "Oh." gosh, we agree with you. Okay, that's all, that's over. And as a result, none of us ever went back to church except for like on holidays. So, um, so, but that, but thus launched, you know, I I think at that point I realized that spirituality was really a quest, you know, it's, it's as much as we can gain from, from books or, or traditions. You know, at the end of the day, you have to find your connection with something greater than yourself. And I and I think that I really, you know, being the curious person that I am, like really dove head, feet, pans, everything first into the deep waters of of different perspectives. And um, and I think along the way, a lot of lessons in life, and a lot of um, you know stories. Just this idea that we can gain personal insight through stories was always really profound for me. I've always loved poetry. I've always loved metaphor, um, symbolism. I have multiple books about, you know, symbolism across different cultures. I studied anthropology as an undergraduate. You know, I was very, very fascinated by these things because I feel like, I feel like in, the, in the vast landscape of the human experience, you need multiple perspectives in order to understand it. You can't just look at it through one tiny peephole You have to really look at it from lots of different perspectives and that's what myth and poetry and psychology and spirituality provide in my opinion
1: yeah so you know i don't accessibility is always kind of a problem i talk about it all the time but you know if someone had come to a young you and said, hey, there's this great major, it's called classical humanities, you just study a bunch of ancient, you know, Greek and Roman stuff, or if someone had come to you and said, we have Egyptology, you can go study the pyramids and mummies. Um, you know, do you think that's something you might have been like, oh, actually, you know, I, I don't mind going to study this in college or, um, you know, or was it just sort of like you had an interest, but you kind of even if it were an option even if someone had just sat you down and said like you could do this you know is it something you might still not have done well i personally would have
2: loved it right so i if i had the opportunity to spend my days pondering the the cultures and the myths of the past i would have totally been all over that i would have i would have loved it i would have eaten it up um, I actually took a, a class on Norse mythology strangely <laughs> just you know I wanted a mythology class and that was the one that fit with my schedule otherwise I probably would have gone with something more traditional like Egypt or, or Greek. Um, you know I went to UCLA so there was plenty of options but you know I had a psych schedule so. Um, so yeah I, I actually think that um, that a lot of people I think misunderstand the classics in the sense that, you know, I, I think I think the, the knee-jerk reaction with a lot of humanities majors in general is, well, what careers are you gonna what career are you gonna get? Right. So as a professor, I hear that all the time. Like, well, what's your career gonna be? And I remind people that, you know, a very tiny percentage of people actually get jobs in, in their major, in their undergraduate major. Graduate majors are different, those are more specialist types of things but a very small percentage of people actually work in their undergraduate major. So then that begs the question, what is the purpose of an undergraduate major? And my reply is undergraduate majors aren't professional schools. They're not designed to train you for a profession. They're designed to train you how to think and how to be critical consumers of information and how to analyze and understand the world around you. And Classics are just as viable a tool to understanding the human experience, to analyzing data, to you know, extrapolating from the past something that we can learn in our present, to learning how to write, learning how to construct a good cogent thesis and argument. The classics are a perfectly wonderful you know, arena to develop those skills just as any other major would be.
1: So, and it's interesting because when you think about schools and places where you you do or you might have the advantage of having some of these uh, ancient disciplines around, um, UCLA actually is 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 one of the schools that offers a program in Egyptology and classics and has these large departments. Um, but then again, you know, if you're not from California or even if you are, it's still very exclusive hard school to get into, um, which just kind of make it harder, um, uh, for everyone, honestly. Um, okay. So I'm going to venture to say, so you, you would have loved to, to get into some of these classics courses if you'd had the chance. Um, but since that just wasn't an option back then, um, why, why psychology? What was it about psychology that you were like, Ugh, I, this seems good. Yeah. So I did psychology and anthropology. Um,
2: and I, so why psychology? Well, well, one. I mean, the, the the big answer is because I'm fascinated by, hum, by the human experience, right? And, um, and humanity in general, in lots of different ways. But but the actual the actual story, is that growing up, I was always like the friend that all the friends would go to with their problems, kind of thing, right? So I was always the one that was like you know, providing sort of ad hoc free therapy for all of my friends. Um, so when I took my very first psychology class, um, I, it, it was interesting. So I, I actually graduated high school early because I had taken a bunch of extra units. And so I only needed one semester. I only needed two classes and one semester's worth of two classes to graduate. And so instead of going to my traditional high school, which, long story, I was going to drop out and join a commune and change the world, but, that, but my, my very brilliant mother said, hey, instead of dropping out of school when you're, like, doing really well and there's no reason on earth for you to drop out of school, um, why don't you go to this alternative school? And so it was like the classic hippy-dippy alternative school. We were all sitting on cushions on the floor, and I had this amazing psychology. So I needed, I needed a humanity, you know, sort of a social study. So I took psychology and we all sat on the floor and studied young and, you know, and, and different types of psychotherapy, you know, psychotherapy techniques. And we would do like dream analysis and all these things in class. And I just, it just was so much fun and I just loved it. And I sort of felt like I, I sort of felt like I connected in a way that I hadn't, in other classes and so at that point I decided I wanted to be a psych major and I and of course at that point as many people entering psychology believe I thought oh I was going to be a clinical psychologist I was going to do therapy but the second I took a social psychology class I knew I had come home I knew it instantly that social psychology was what my entire life had been directing me towards and I've never looked back
1: Okay, so for those of us who may not actually know what social psychology, because we know what sociology is, I would venture guess most people do, and most people know psychology on its own. So uh, you were the first person I've ever met who combined them, and um, I may have thought you were joking at one point in my life, um, just because (laughs) I... just because I didn't know what it was. So um, yeah. So can you, can you get that all the time? I'm like, I'm a social psychologist. People like, oh, I
2: took a sociology course. I'm like, "Mm, not the same thing at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So can you just explain a little bit what
2: that is? So, so a lot of people think about psychology from clinical, from the perspective of clinical psychology, but, but clinical psychology, and that's like the therapy branch of psychology is actually, one of many, many, many branches of psychology. Actually, the, the, the vast majority of the branches of psychology are scientific research-based branches of psychology. So they're not necessarily intervention-oriented, they're more exploration and discovery. And social psychology is the study of how human beings are inherently social creatures. And you cannot understand the psychology of people without understanding how that psychology is inherently and from birth shaped by our social experiences. And so some people will describe it sort of the shorthand of like how people influence each other. Um, But, you know, how we define ourselves, you know, from birth, we are defined by social identities. You know, you're born into groups, your culture is defined by groups, Your, your context is group-based and it shapes almost every aspect of human psychology. So it's a really fascinating look at how our groupiness, our inherently grouping, our inherent groupiness really shapes almost every aspect of our thinking and feeling.
1: Okay, so I think that hopefully is going to help a lot of people. So if they do meet a social psychologist, they can go, I think I uh I know what you're about. I'm not going to, you know, say something stupid like, "Oh, so you're you're a sociologist or or something." Well, and you know? and let me make that easy. And here's the big difference.
2: Think about the unit of analysis. So social psychologists study the unit of analysis is still the individual. It's still the psychology of the individual. Whereas sociology tends to look more at the social group as the unit of analysis. And so that's the big
1: difference. Okay, yeah. Well, I I hope um well, maybe, <laughs> maybe you'll influence a whole new group of people to go into social psychology. Who knows? Well, let me
2: tell, let me tell your listening audience, which I hope is vast <laughs> or will be, um, social, ev- all of my students who take social psychology, you know, you know, a lot of them remark with the same kind of comment that, oh my gosh, this was the Life 101 course. Like, this is the course that is so relevant to every single aspect of life, and everyone should take it. So there you go. Everyone should take it. Take social psychology. You won't regret it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure if, if there had been a class offered at Mizzou um, that kind of touched on it, I probably would have taken it. Um, you would know, have just, loved it. As, as I'm sure I would have. Uh, as it happened, you know, there, there wasn't. So I, I think I settled for, I did settle for a psychology class because I needed uh, an extra credit um, to graduate. Yeah. Um, but I think I took yeah, like think It's a- usually an upper division
2: class, which requires intro which is Oh, okay. Yeah. No, well, I, I skipped
1: that. Easier. I definitely skipped that because I went right to like intro to personality or something because that class uh... was all about the different, you know, psychological, you know, disorders you could have. So, um, you know, I was no, like, yeah, too- <laughs> I'm going to take a class and learn about schizophrenia and ADD and crazy people. And that's, that's a little, it's a little different how it turned out. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So, okay. So I want to go a little back to, uh, well, sort of tying in the, the symbolism part that that you loved growing up, but also um, just in terms of anyone who has known me or talked to me or hopefully has been listening to the first couple episodes of this podcast should hopefully know by now that uh, I am kind of on a mission to prove that the ancient world is relevant now and everything we do. Um, you know, whether it is in our pop culture, like Harry Potter, because it shows up everywhere, um, and Percy Jackson and other kinds of um, mediums, a billion songs have been written based off of classical material. So, you know, kind of thinking a little bit, though, about all the symbolism that pops up from the ancient world. um, I know you deal a little with symbolism in your research and ideology. Um, You know, I... Probably have a billion opinions on, on how those things tie in, but I want to ask you though, you know, how do you tie in a lot of these symbols and references and things that you sort of both like to, you know, kind of approach on your own, but also in your professional life? How do you, you know, sort of tie those together? Where does the the symbolism and, and ideology stuff come into your own work?
2: Yeah, so so I guess those are two kind of different questions. One is like in my own life or maybe what I teach and the other is my own research. So um, in terms of my life, I feel like, you know, symbolism, you know, what's, what's really powerful and this, you know, and, and Campbell talks about this in his work is that You know, we're, you know, what the hero's journey, sort of this this roadmap to human enlightenment, is not really talking, it's not trying to talk to the conscious mind. The conscious mind is a barrier that kind of gets in the way. It's trying to access the unconscious mind. And it's through images and emotions and feelings. Like that is the language of the unconscious mind. And that's really what you need to open up and release. And stories, you know, beautifully written stories, stories that are fantastical, that take us beyond the mundane material world, are the things that tend to enliven the unconscious mind. And that's what sort of opens us up to the possibility that we need to think beyond our material world to find our connection to something greater. And mythology and and stories are the better vehicle for that, because they allow us to to put press the pause button on our conscious mind and really kind of go past that. And that's what makes I think mythology so powerful. Um, as a tool now going on to my work. Um, you know, looking at intergroup conflict and intergroup violence and things like white nationalism and things like that, you know, symbols are really important there too. Right. So, you know, so we as group members, you know, we have a lot of what we call sort of, you know, what we call sort of symbolic values and symbolic, you know, standing in the world. So, you know, when we think about social change, for example, um, you know, what's happening with immigration? Let's, let's just take that example. So with immigration, yes, you have some, you know, pragmatic concerns. You have, you know, there's only so many jobs to go around, you know, immigrants, um, although they contribute tremendously to the tax base, you know, they also utilize resources that are part of the larger society. You know, so there are absolutely sort of pragmatic financial um, discussions around immigration, but in, in, in many research studies show that actually, oftentimes it's the symbolic things that tend to weigh more heavily on people's mind. You know, when cultures change, what changes with it? Like is, you know, when people move into a different culture, is the culture itself gonna change? Is the, are the values gonna change? is what it means to be an American gonna change. And it's those things that sometimes carry the greater currency for people. Um, you know, jobs can come and go, but it's, the, it's our, those tethers that we have to the larger society that we really put a lot of weight into. And when we think there's a threat to our symbolic values, our symbolic identities, that's when the threat seems especially existential. And so, you know, we, t- we look at both the realistic, you know, or sort of the pragmatic dynamics, but also the symbolic dynamics, because we know at the end of the day, what it means to be a white person is almost entirely symbolic. So, I mean, whiteness is not actually a thing genetically. right? It's, it's a symbolic, you know, a socially constructed construct. And we attach meaning to it, you know, or any other racial or ethnic identity, we attach meaning to it based on our lived experiences and based on what we consider to be some sort of shared or underlying ideology or identity or culture. And, um, and so as a result, those things become, for many people, not everyone, but for, for many people, you know, the most important aspect of that identity.
1: So when people then come into your class, uh, your Harry Potter class, Mm -hmm. do you notice at all, you know, do, do some people kind of come in with these preconceived sort of ideas of identity or what a hero's journey looks like based on you know, more of their own experiences or kind of what they've read. So what I what I mean by that, I guess, is kind of like, you know, if you had a student come in who was very familiar with a bunch of Greek and Roman mythology or North mythology or, or something with a background mm-hmm. um, and, you know, these stories, you know, you can kind of use your imagination. And so, you know, if your background is, you know, upper middle-class white person you know that they could be like oh yes all the north people were were white and all the the greeks were white and all everything you know so their culture itself is a um you know we have many heroes like hercules and their their whole culture and civilization it's just um you know kind of a representation of the collective western white civilization versus yeah. you know someone who comes into the class uh, you know, who they could be a minority, they could be, you know, something different. So they could say, oh, well, you know, I go to, uh, you know, I go to church because my family is, is, you know, very devout and, and um, we don't see it that way. So, you know, they could come in and say, hey, I'm going to take a Harry Potter class and hey, he, spoiler alert, dies at the end. Oh, it, it's so Judeo-Christian because it's like the Bible, you know. Yep. Um, so how do you deal with people who come in thinking, vastly different things and bridging that together. Yeah, so in terms of the students who come into my class,
2: um, so I do have a strict prerequisite, and that is you had to have already read the Harry Potter books. We do not read the Harry Potter books in class. We read Hero with a Thousand Faces and supplemental readings that bring in some of these other um, poetry or short stories or mythology from different cultures. Um, Harry Potter is, so they all come in with that in common, with a love of Harry Potter on some level or another. Now, some students, they fudge and they're like, oh, we only saw the movies, we didn't actually read the books. I'm like, "Eh, okay, you're not gonna get as deeply, but whatever, you could probably keep up. Um, But they all come in with some sort of attachment to Harry Potter. And it's really through Campbell that they really start to expand that fascination to start to see the connections with other cultures. And the one thing I will commend Campbell, and even though there are many outdated things, particularly with relation to gender, in his book, I mean, he wrote this book in the late 30s and early 40s, so we're not talking about like you know, uber wokeness here, (laughs) but I will, I will hand it to him. I mean, it's, it's definitely ahead of its time and he really makes an effort to try to bring in mythology from a huge variety of cultures from all over the world. And that was almost in many respects his charge, right? So if he's trying to make the claim about a monomyth, he cannot make that claim with any sort of, um, you know, validity if all he focused on was the Western world. Then it's not a monomyth, then it's a very culturally bounded myth. And so he was compelled to look at mythology from the African continent and from, um, you know, from indigenous peoples from all over the world, from Asia. So, so really, The Hero with a Thousand Faces is sort of a tour through mythologies from all over the world and in all different time points throughout the world. So, um, so it's really through that exploration that the students start to see Harry Potter's experience in the experiences across cultures.
1: Okay, yeah, no, I mean, it sounds super interesting. Um... I know that we've talked about this this amazing book uh, a lot and I admit I did not get through the whole thing just for basically, I was in school and I didn't have time and I feel Okay, I, I,
2: have to, I have to say one thing for anyone who's listening to this and might be curious to read Hero with a Thousand Faces, A, you should and B, it is extremely turgid and hard to get through, but stick with it because it is absolutely brilliant. And it happens and I, and I warn my students, I'm like, the first couple of times you read it, it's gonna be really, really hard to get through and you're not gonna understand it. So A, it's not a book that you're supposed to read cover to cover. It's a book where you like sit down and you have a cup of tea with a paragraph and you read that paragraph 10 times and you ponder its meaning. Like it is not like, oh, I'm just gonna flip through it while watching Netflix. Like, nope, you will be lost, guaranteed. But if you're willing to put the time in it will open up and become one of the most beautiful things you'll ever read.
1: Well, that makes the case that I should probably start again to try to make my way through this book because I did I think, And
2: I think what's great about it, and and this is what my students say in vis-a-vis Harry Potter, is at the end of, you know, they come in, I've literally had students come in with Deathly hollow tattoos like they have committed to have a permanent mark of Harry Potter upon their bodies, right? And at the end of this class, they were like, I never appreciated Harry Potter the way I do now. I, I, have, I have such a deeper appreciation of it than I ever could have before I took this course. And not just that, but any hero's journey that you look at through this lens, any story, any mythology from the classics, from modern times, when you can look at it through this lens it's going to take on so much more depth and meaning than the story on at its face value and we kind of have this visceral sense of it like when we see watch a hero's journey on the big screen or we read it you know you know in the pages of a book it feels there's something about the way it feels but then when you can actually have the language to understand it like oh my gosh the most simple you know a Disney animation can become one of the most profound stories you've ever seen you know with through this lens, so yes, I encourage you to stick with it
1: <laughs> to give it a another- and and now, I feel sad that I never had the opportunity to take this class because I probably would have benefited so much uh, and it would have benefited the rest of my studies in classics, and I probably would have been able to make so many more connections well, i might I might invite you to join us oh okay well. <laughs> <laughs> Well, especially after COVID, uh, I would love to, if I'm still in Chicago, I would love to just pop in and uh, see what's going on. It's online. You could join anytime. Oh, beautiful. (laughs) See what you're teaching young minds uh, of today. Um, But... Um, okay. So, but you, you but know, you have a Harry Potter, you know, I mean, a,
2: a Joseph Campbell scholar, you know, at your fingertips. So ask me. Anything.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, if only everyone in the world, uh, had a, had a Campbell, uh, scholar to, to ask, I think, uh, it'd be very interesting. Um, but so, you know, certainly I think we've definitely established one, uh, you, you should, Take this class. Um, if if not, too
2: if you're a student at TuPaul, please take my class. Except it's really hard to get into. It fills in, it fills up like in ten minutes.
1: Okay, so then basically start early and then get in it. Um, <laughs> you or read
2: Campbell and just be like, okay, read it slowly and carefully and mindfully, and and like be like, okay, how does this play to Harry Potter?
1: Yeah, any number of those things, or do kind of what I did in school, be a rebel and. To see if you can sneak in or audit classes even if you can't actually get in an intake them for credit um that is not an endorsement don't do that kids um but um <laughs> but but beyond just just making a, a case for why it's 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 relevant to to take this class in terms of understanding things like you know your favorite stories how they are connected to this one idea of a monomyth that hey we're actually all kind of the same from anywhere any place any way you slice it yeah. um you know, so th- it seems to me like, you know, this is relevant beyond just those who love stories. I mean, it seems like this class and this subject would be good for anyone in any discipline. Um, and they could sort of use that to either apply it and, and be good at their job or just sort of apply it and be good in, in life. Um but I, I don't know if in your field, there's as much of a crunch as there is for all of the ancient disciplines. Um, but funding seems to be the perpetual um, enemy here where we have amazing classes, just, just like the, the Harry Potter one, um, but less and less people are going to have the opportunity to take it just because we are losing funding and you know there's this kind of crunch to say okay well we have these other classes that you know we need to have taught that are you know not quite as niche or whatnot and um you know they're, they're pulling professors off so um you know is that is that kind of happening where you are or not so much
2: well i think i think higher education all over the world is going through a crisis right now and and it's being Accelerated by the pandemic, obviously, um, but it's been it's been in a crisis for some time. Where and and I would probably say I've really noticed a market shift after the economic collapse of two thousand eight, where people, um, you know, the the cost of higher education was getting higher and higher, and the the results, you know, the the benefit of higher education was harder and harder to quantify, meaning that people were in, in debt, college debt for longer. They were graduating from college and not getting the jobs that really garnered those salaries that made that debt justifiable. And so for a long time people, for a long time now, people have been really pondering the utility of higher education which I think has fueled its shift towards a more professional school model. Like if we're gonna charge these high fees, there needs to be, there needs to be a, a more direct line between the education and the career payoff. And I think this notion of an institution that teaches people how to be better thinkers and better writers and um, you know, better people, is 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 in some people's minds kind of outmoded and now college should be something that prepares you for your career and i think that that's part of the problem is that you know students are starting to rethink you know maybe i could spend a lot of time at a community college first and save some money maybe i can go into the trades, you know? And so we really need to ask ourselves, you know, how does a a college education continue to benefit people? And it does financially, people with college degrees make on average way higher salaries than people without. Um, But I think that departments across the board are getting cut. And unless you're a department that can offer more of a trade school model or a professional school model, you're on the chopping block, you know? It's, it's, it's challenging, but at the same time, students still need to have that liberal education. They still need to have that, the, that broad array of things that make them look at the world from a bigger point of view. And that's where the classics, I think, can fill those gaps. You know, So the challenge is how to get those undergraduate courses to fulfill liberal studies requirements, to be pragmatic, right? So if we can get the classics to fill literature requirements or um, or uh, some other type of human studies requirements or religion requirements or something like that, then I think that the classics absolutely have a, an undeniably important place that people will fight for. I think that if the classics, you know, are overly siloed, then that's when I think they can be more vulnerable. And I, and I would say that for almost any field, actually. I think all fields, even my own, is you know, is is experiencing a lot of cuts?
1: So you know, I am sure you're aware just as much as I am. Um, there's this market shift towards, you know, well if you're gonna go to college, you gotta just fight, gotta make money, gotta help fix society. So go into STEM, um, and you know they're offering more and more scholarships, and just really there's a concerted messaging effort. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, to promote that kind of stuff, but, you know, sitting here as me being a classicist and you being in, you know, some people would say, oh, you could related field in the humanities, or some people would say, well, yours is a little more sciencey either way though, you know, far from the STEM that people promote, you know, what would you say to someone who just would say, you know, I can't spare the time to take this Harry Potter class, or I don't want to take a mythology class. Uh, I'd rather go do math. Um, so, I mean, my, my, my point for them is, um,
2: I mean, look at you, right? So you're a, classics, you're a classics major. You are an extremely critical thinker. You see things from a big picture. You're a great writer. You have foundational skills that you can, you can parlay into numerous careers. The challenge for higher education in catering our offerings to particular career trends is that trends are trends, they only last for a while. Right now, the trend, the prevailing trend is that STEM careers are the fastest growing careers in our current times. But what's gonna happen 10, 20 years from now? Is it still gonna be STEM or is it gonna be something else? And once again, if you're, if, you're, if your training is too narrow, you might not be able to pivot with career trends, right? So today it's STEM, but tomorrow it might be something else. And I think the better gamble is to get a very, very well-rounded education that provides foundational skills. And I would argue that there are a lot of different ways to get those foundational skills, that the, that the courses that you take, which challenge the way you think and which challenge you to look at the world from a bigger perspective, can be achieved through a variety of courses, including classics, including psychology or sociology or anthropology, and to not shut that door because then you're just going to leave a specialist that is only good at one thing, and that might not pay off in the long run. You've got to have that that general foundation.
1: I mean, I would love to and be personally inclined to agree with um, you know with those sentiments. Um, and, and I think that I would hope that, that people aren't scared off by the, the, the scary job market and say, no, 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 I, I can still make time for the things that I, I love to, to do or to study um, without feeling like, you know, I, I can't possibly, you know, do that because blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, I, I hope it is. Well, let's face it. it. We think better and deeper when it's something that fascinates us.
2: Don't we want to awaken that? Don't we want to see the depth of our potential? Like, why are, why are these, and I see it all the time. I advise students academically all the time. And I see these students like just struggling in this silent desperation because they're convinced they have to be accountants and they can't stand it. (laughs) Like they're miserable every day of their life. And I tell them like, you know what, you're going to spend the vast majority of your waking hours in your doing your career. Make darn sure you love it. If you don't love it, don't do it, otherwise what's it all for, right? So, you know, they're, they're being told these frightening messages from the, you know, career world, like, oh, you have to make a lot of money and you have to do all these things. And they're not actually reaching their potential. They're barely hanging on is what it is. And so we see high dropout rates. We see students changing majors two, three times because they're not finding the thing that really allows them to blossom. And I feel like in college, you're not going to really get the most out of it unless you can be in, a, in, a, in an environment where you can blossom. So you're going to spend an awful lot of money being mediocre, doing something you hate. I'm not sure that's a good investment.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think those are very, very valid points. And I, as I'm sitting here kind of thinking about it as well, um, you know, our world is so multifaceted and we have so many world issues that we hopefully will will solve at some point soon. Um, and just kind of thinking about that, you know, I'm not sure, you know, a STEM major who comes out with a very specific skill set, you know, you can just kind of put them on the spot and say, okay, how do we fix the world? Um, you know, how do we fix world hunger for, or, or um, right. you know, create a better, more energy efficient, Planet. I mean they could probably tell us the ins and outs of of the mechanics behind that but somebody's got to be there to think up the actual concept of okay well this is the idea you're the one who can build it for us now um so you know considering that they might be more limited then you know what do you think then as as someone who likes to study group psychology and and people um you know what is it going to take to kind of you know really attack some of the world's issues, you know, is it kind of, a, yeah. is it going to be very interdisciplinary? I mean, is this more of a reason why we should fund the humanity? So that way, uh, you know, you'll, you'll have a good mix of people who can come up with the ideas and then the people who can actually make them happen. Uh, to
2: absolutely. A- absolutely. And, and you said it perfectly yourself, like, right, you know, let, let's talk, let's talk about hunger or whatever, an environmental crisis or, you know, you know, name your crisis, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to need some brilliant STEM people who can, understand the impact on a on a microorganism in the coral reef, you know, or just how to get nitrates out of fresh water or whatever. We're going to need those people. But you know who else we're going to need? We're going to need the people who are going to have the public service, who are going to design the public service campaigns. We're going to need the people who are going to need to be in charge of behavior change, to get people to change their behavior so that we can actually you know, you know, course correct on these environmental problems. You know, we're going to need to get people, you know, how do you convince people in a rural village that they should get vaccines, right? You've got to be able to speak their language. You have to be able to relate to their culture. You have to be able to understand their human concerns, their beliefs, their cultures, and, and be able to relate to it in a non- judgmental or patronizing way in order to to be able to work collaboratively with people from all over the world. You need people who are good with people. In any of these problems, you are never going to solve these problems with science alone. You need people to get on board. And so there's always going to be a space for this.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, That also just made the case for, hey, we're going to need ancient historians to help us solve world problems as well, because, you know, uh, if we're thinking about it in kind of a structured way, you know, we're going to have the people who can sort of make the technology and the ideas into reality. Then we need the people who can think about these things and think about solutions. And then we also have a a niche for people who can inform those who are in charge of messaging uh, and and other stuff, um, you know. Hey, I look at the past and what you're thinking about was tried in the past and it didn't work for X, Y, and Z. So it it kind of looks like there's, there's a big chain, which just furthers the, we all kind of need these things. So it it does ourselves quite a disservice to try to convince ourselves that, you know, one part of this vital chain just you know, isn't important. Um, (laughs) Exactly.
2: I mean, I mean, we like to think that, you know, we're facing you know, we're facing novel modern problems, but every single one of the problems we're facing we're, have, we've been facing for thousands of years, right? Cultures from thousands of years ago faced warfare, faced pandemics, faced environmental crises, faced natural disasters. We're talking about human problems that continue to repeat themselves over and over again. And if we're, and if we're prideful enough or stupid enough to ignore the lessons from the past, then you know, we're, we're reinventing the wheel every single time we face one of these problems. And I think that that's just gonna slow down our progress. Like we need people who understood how these dynamics played out in the past because we can get a tremendous amount of insight into how they're playing out today. And we see these same patterns repeating over and over again in all of these different contexts. Like how much have our scientists learned from the 1918 pandemic? Or even pandemics before that. You know, we've learned so much about how to handle this pandemic by looking at pandemics from the past. And that's such a valuable perspective. I mean, can you imagine if you were facing this existential crisis and someone came up to you and said, hey, I've got all these great insights about not only how this crisis started, but how it's going to progress and how it's going to end. You want to know about it? Like, what fool would say no, (laughs) right? Like, why would we turn our backs to this knowledge? It's completely crazy.
1: And I think, you know, it's a really great point, because I think to, to bring it almost full circle to, to where we kind of started with with Harry Potter, with mythology um, and its impact on, on modern cultures, you know, in addition to these people who just get to s- study these, uh, you know, ancient civilizations, whether it's the nitty gritty, whether it's the ancient philosophers or mathematicians, the really smart people. I mean, do you think, you know, and it's interesting, you know, what kind of... Um, you know mythological or it doesn't even have to be mythological it could honestly just be legends old stories anything that comes from the past that you know isn't maybe entirely real you know they come and they really affect the human psyche you know the it's not ancient but what I was thinking of was um, Aesop's fables Mm -hmm. Um, you know and that kind of really plays into the human ideology for wherever and whoever you are right I mean those are ancient stories and we kind of like to base our, our lives, our, our moral compasses, right? On these old stories, yeah. because we mm-hmm. use them to educate children. Right. So, right. um, you know, the boy who cried wolf, I don't know who came up with it in its, uh, current iteration. Um, yeah. but it was originally, you can trace it back to ancient Greece. There was a similar story. Maybe it's not a boy and maybe it's not a wolf, but, um, the, the message is the same. Oh, yeah. maybe you shouldn't, lie, right? And that goes into, <laughs> hey, are you a moral person today? What is yeah. morality? You know, it gets so right. moral, which I, I find really interesting. And that's just yet another way it sort of impacts us um, here in the, in the modern world.
2: Well, and I think you're tapping into something that is really important. Well, two, a couple of things. Number one is that these stories tend to be universal, um, which just underscores the fact that the human... Experience and the process of learning and growing and the fact that, you know, one of the challenges of being a social species is that we need very well-developed systems of morality in order to coexist in a productive way. And so you have a lot of these stories repeating over and over again across cultures, across time, in really similar ways because they speak to the same underlying moral principles. But on top of that, it's interesting and not irrelevant or trivial that a lot of these stories pertain to animals or fantastical magical happenings. Right? And, it's, and why is that? Why do cultures from all over the world pick those symbols? And it's because, you know, once again, when you can appeal to that unconscious mind when you can have something that's visual and emotional and visceral, that's colorful and vivid, those things stick with you, right? If it was just a a rambling treatise about morality, people, you know, A, are not gonna learn it as children and B, are probably gonna forget about it. But if it's the really compelling story with a fox and a turtle and a duck or something like that, like people are gonna remember it from childhood and it's gonna stick with you and the messages are going to continue to, um, to, pl- to evolve as you grow up and as you develop as a moral person.
1: Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, going off of, um, you know, stories and how we educate people, especially the young, uh, that segues perfectly into uh, kind of at the end of each podcast, I, I love asking guests to read um, the poem Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. So uh, if you have a, a, the poem or a copy of it handy, and if you would please read it for us, that would be amazing.
0: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash acast and use code ACAST for
1: 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
2: Right. I will read Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away.
1: And so I, I, it's one of the best poems I've ever come across. I read it, I believe, um, in high school. Um, I, I can't remember what class or when. I might have actually read it in college, but it, it stuck with me. And so, you know, now having read it, um, you know, can you give us your thoughts a little on, on, you know, what is this poem trying to say? How is it educating us? How is it offering us a, a lesson? And is it actually, uh, offering us a lesson? So that's a really, um,
2: that's a really interesting story. So, you know, I can't help but read it from Somewhat of a hero's journey perspective on the one hand, um, but also I feel like, um, you know, some of the themes of our conversation about it, the antiquities and the, the classics kind of come to mind as well. But I'll, I'll start with my first impression. Um, you know, it's to me, it's an interesting image of, you know, when I read it, I imagine that this was this colossal. Stone statue at one point that was very grand, very imposing, and even the plaque sort of, um, you know, declares that this Ozymandias, this king of kings, you know, look on my works, ye mighty, right? The strongest of them all should despair from the work of this fabled king. And yet all that remains is this crumbled statue in the desert and surrounding this statue aren't the great works of this king. It's a vast desert that stretches. It's just sand, lone and level sand stretching as far as the eye can see, boundless and bare, right? So all of the works of this king are gone. And yet this king in in his moment, you know, fancied himself to be immortal. Right, that that his works would last throughout time, that he would be this imposing, almost godlike figure, and yet he is reduced to rubble and dust, like we all are ultimately, right? And I think that um, you know, from a Campbellian perspective, I think it really is a an interesting look at at you know, the, the ego and, you know, the hero's journey is ultimately a journey of how to destroy and overcome the ego. And in many respects to me, I feel like, you know, so many civilizations, so many, you know, like, like this is the path of all of us. You know, we have these great moments of our lives where we feel like we're on top of the world, but, you know, in the end, we're going to be dust. What is left? And yet, and yet, there is this traveler from an antique land who still marvels at this, and is informing presumably another traveler to go and, and look at this. Right. So, so what does that mean? Right. It it means that, you know, even even when everything is crumbled to dust, there is still this. This sort of trace to our past, I guess. I don't know. I'm trying to understand. It it's interesting, but it you know it's also sort of a lesson in pride. I feel like, you know, even the mightiest fall, it's a it's a lesson in time, that what we think is so absolutely central and important may not be someday, may be irrelevant someday. Um, king of kings like you know just it's lost in a desert no you know probably the the modern world of this poem does not even know this person ever existed
1: yeah and i mean i think you know for those with a a very classical background um you know it, it is a very well taught well thought through poem Um, And so, you know, I like to ask and just see what people think, especially if they don't have a background that I do. Um, And then, you know, I want to see if it changes when I say Ozymandias is actually the Greek name for the Egyptian pharaoh, Ramesses II, who was arguably the greatest pharaoh in the history of of the Egyptian empire, which lasted for 3,000 years. Um, And he was the longest lived and uh, the wealthiest, the most fabulously wealthy. So, um, you know... I don't know how many people are gonna come in beforehand and, and know that the poem is really just about Ramesses the um, just with a with a different name. Um, mm-hmm. and I don't know if that'll change kind of their their perceptions of, of what it's telling us at all, but um, you know, does it for you?
2: Um, I actually think that it it
1: it actually makes me
2: feel more aligned with my impression in, in the sense that that Ramses, as you as you state, was a great king, you know, in his in his day. I mean, the Egyptian Empire itself was a vast empire that has outlasted almost all modern empires by a long shot. And and yet, you know, there will come a point in time where he is nothing but dust and memory. But perhaps there are still vestiges of his works that stand even among the dust of time.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, there's so many different ways that, you know, people interpret this and it has been interpreted differently throughout the ages. Um, so thank you for, you know, for for giving us the sharing with us uh, your impressions of it and um, uh, just, I, I, I was so excited to get you on the podcast. So, uh, you know, I, uh, it was such a treat because as always I could, I could sit and talk to you for hours and hours and hours. Um, you know, hopefully in, in the future we'll be able to do it. Um, but yeah, so thank you once again for coming on the podcast and, um, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll talk soon. Trireme
0: transit is now departing ancient odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings I met a traveler from an antique land Who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone Stand in the desert Near them on the sand Half-sunk a shattered visage lies Whose frown and wrinkled lip And sneer of cold command Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50